Dana's and Becky's, I have a big announcement. So please lend me your full attention. On April 24th, Don't Ask Tig will have a special live virtual show that you can attend. I'll be joined by the one and only Mark Marin. You know Mark from his IFC series, Marin, Netflix's Glow, and of course, his hugely popular landmark podcast, WTF with Mark Marin. If you want to join us for this one-time event, go to don'tasktig.org slash live and donate $15 or more. The show airs on April 24th at 6 p.m. Pacific time, 9 p.m. Eastern, and 8 p.m. Central. Pause this episode, head to don'tasktig.org slash live and sign up right now. 10 lucky audience members will be a part of a special surprise during the broadcast. Again, Don't Ask Tig Live with Mark Marin is on April 24th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. Donate $15 or more at don'tasktig.org slash live to join. It's going to be a good time with a lot of fun, laughter, and hilariously unqualified advice. I cannot wait to see you all there. Also, on April 14th, I will be in the Biloxi, Mississippi area, and then on April 20th, Red Bank, New Jersey, April 21st, Poughkeepsie, New York. I'll also be in Las Vegas on May 2nd, Fayetteville, Arkansas on June 23rd, and also keep your eyes and ears peeled for the date that I will be taping my next stand-up special I will be revealing that very soon. So come on out and see the last few shows that I'm doing before my taping. Go to tignotaro.com for all show links and ticket information. See you there. Now on with the show. My wife has more of an understanding of the Kardashians. I had to introduce Kim at some event And then I was retelling something about the evening to somebody. And Stephanie, my wife, overheard me say, yeah. And then I was bringing Michelle Kardashian out. And and Stephanie was like, did you just call her Michelle Kardashian? I was like, what is her name? I will never again see her face in anything and not think that there's Michelle. Michelle Michelle. Kardashian. That's going to be it. This is Don't Ask Tig. I'm Tig Notaro warning you that while my advice is free, you will pay the price at one point or another. Amber Tamblin is an Emmy and Golden Globe nominated actress, director, and writer. The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, Joan of Arcadia, and Why the Last Man are just a few of her many credits. She has written six critically acclaimed books and edited the best-selling anthology, Listening in the Dark, Women Reclaiming the Power of Intuition. She is an opinion writer for the New York Times, The Cut, and The New Yorker. Her most recent writing can be found at ambertamblin.substack.com. 
Amber Tamblin. Welcome to Don't Ask Tig. Thanks for having me, Tig. What an intro. Yeah. Well, what a life. What a career. <laughs> You've recently uh, wrote an article about how Bravo's franchise, The Real Housewives, has real value for its mostly female audience. Can you tell me more about that? Okay, I love that you picked up on this particular article because I love that article and I feel like I was I was like, I'm not sure if people read it, but now knowing that you didn't. Um, also, I just did a podcast with Bethany Frankel. She's an interesting character. I've had a couple experiences with her. Yeah, that was my only experience. And the world of the housewives, that was the first thing for me. And I am very curious what your take is. Yes, yeah. So the the article um, is specifically about that, about I think what we what we're really getting from women on reality television, specifically, I think, Vanderpump Rules and the many different Real Housewives franchises, maybe not so much the Kardashians, because that feels more kept together and more branded and more like a very specific thing that we're going to see them for, like eating salads. But <laughs> I think the rest of the Housewives and some of these other shows, it's like a powder keg of emotion in which you don't really know when someone is going to pop off or when someone is going to sort of show you the full breadth of their anguish or frustration or sadness or jealousy or rage or whatever it is. And there's something kind of cathartic about that, I think, just as a viewer to wonder and to sort of fantasize almost, what would it be like if I could just say and do what I really felt? And especially as a woman where we are trained and brought up to really sort of have different relationships to the values of our emotions. And we are, you know, often told that emotional intelligence is not a good place to think or act from. And while I do think that's true on occasion, there is something worth exploring in seeing someone, specifically women, get to act out in that way, in such a public manner. And in the Substack post that you mentioned that sort of has a much deeper dive about all this, I actually reference a Jeffrey McDaniel poem. I think it's called Air Empathy. It's a very short poem, but the piece is specifically about riding on an airplane. And I make this analogy. I make this, this sort of comparison. Riding on an airplane as an adult while an infant near you is screaming their lungs out. And then sort of that anguish taking over person by person the entire plane until it's just a bullet flying through the sky of screaming, crying adults, <laughs> you know, their emotions on full display. And so to me, those are sort of connected because I think at times reality television and the women and how they behave, while we might gasp and say, oh my gosh, I would never. At the same time, it's it's sort of touching this deep desire to be able to behave and and more importantly, feel whatever you want to, whenever you want to. Interesting. So if you were in that world, what would Amber look like? Oh, Lord. <laughs> I have no I think I don't know. I would be like the quiet friend judging in the corner, sipping on a straw of vodka or something. <laughs> I don't think I would be, I don't think I would have the bravery to do some of the stuff that they do. There is a famous episode of a woman who's an amputee who throws her leg at somebody. Oh. And I'm like, that's just good television. And she's essentially like, the only thing fake about me is my leg. And she throws it. It's excellent. Do you think that was scripted? I think all of it to a degree is not scripted, but I do think like good politicians, uh -huh. they work on their lines. Yeah. They know what they want to say. They've 
thought about the angle they're going to take in any given scenario or party, which is why it obviously is, quote unquote, supposed to be real in reality, Mm -hmm. but that it's not. It's actually something that you're watching where you're like, okay, I know someone is going into this situation and they want to fight. This one's going to go into this situation. They know they're going to be fought with. Right, right. Now, Amber, in addition to everything that you do, you're also an award-winning poet. I wrote my fair share of poetry as a child, and I won't share it with you. But if I were to really try to write a poem Mm -hmm. right now, where should I start? I'm going to need to see your poems now, Tig. That's like the Michelle Kardashian of the (laughs) bombs that you just dropped on me. I remember a line that I wrote when I was in, I think, seventh grade, and it started out, (laughs) sometimes I think of you, but then again, I always do. Oh, come on. That's so sweet. Yeah, yeah. That was the beginning of a poem. My first book was Free Stallion, which was like a cult. And also, I don't know what that term means. I think I just was really into Tori Amos and Mm, Ani Franco. Sure. I was like, it just sounds right. It's about a horse being free, (laughs) (laughs) you know, adolescent girls. But there was a poem in there that I had called Kill Me So Much, which was like, uh, it was a collection of poems from about 12 years old to 22. And they very much wanted to be like hyper-political, like the musicians and the other poets that I loved, such as the two women that I sort of mentioned. Yeah. But I think (laughs) the opening line of that is something like, Die, die, we all cry with our stubborn cannons blowing off and our noses like dead poodles. Yep, that's it. (laughs) Arriving on a nightmare, praying for a dream. You're welcome. That's a line I remember from it. (laughs) It's a very dramatic kid. (laughs) How old were you? I was 12. I was about that same age when I wrote, sometimes I think of you, but then again, I always do. I, I think that's a bit of a side effect a wonderful side effect of my life growing up around a lot of poets and growing up in Los Angeles and Southern California around a lot of the remaining beat poets, Diane DePrima and Amiri Baraka and Mm -hmm. and, uh, my late mentor, Jack Hirschman. Mm -hmm. And they were all like deeply political poets. And so my early, my very early work, of course, I think tried to emulate them a lot. Things were always an ode to them. But to actually that poem, Jack Hirschman was an editor of a small magazine in San Francisco Chronicle called Cups. And that poem, Kill Me So Much, he took that poem and he published it Mm -hmm. in there. So I had a poem published for this first time at a young age and sort of for the first time ever looked and felt this profound sense of self, even that young of like, wow, this is really powerful. And I feel sort of seen my work and not really realizing how much that was going to affect the rest of my life, especially as an actress in my other career, Mm -hmm. which is a very disorienting business that sort of everything you do is you are an object. You are a mirror of yourself. You are learning other people's lines. You are playing another character. Your work is being edited together by a director and an editor, and you don't know how that's going to turn out. So it's really only sort of 50% yours. Whereas seeing my poem published on a page was 100% mine. And so it felt very different in a lot of ways and was uh, sort of revolutionary to my young mind. You also, you played, uh, speaking of your acting career, you played a conservative pundit in the series, Why the Last Man, which imagines a world without men. What did you learn 
from playing a character with such polar opposite views from your own? Well, that um, short-lived show, which was uh, absolutely brilliant, um, an adaptation of the beloved graphic novel by the same name. And it's why, like, just for listeners, why is in, like, the letter Y. And it is about a world where there is a big pandemic and all cisgendered men are left dead. And so everyone else is there to try to figure out what the world is. And it's not necessarily great all the time. It's a little, you know, Lord of the Flies, but with ladies. <laughs> it was incredible. It was uh, created by Eliza Clark, who is a brilliant writer, showrunner. One of my most memorable and joyous experiences was working on that show. And also because of this character, Kimberly Cunningham was her name. And she very much was a sort of you know, Megan McCain character. Her mm -hmm. father's the president of the United States. He dies in the opening episode because all the men do. And she's also sort of like a self-proclaimed boy mom. She's got three sons. Her identity is really through them and through this idea of we're destroying masculinity. We're destroying the future of our boys and what they're meant to do. And so I loved it because, you know, I'm turning 40 this year and I've been acting since I was 10 years old. And it's few and far between where there's something that you go, that I haven't done before. Mm. That is not a kind of character that I've gotten to play with. And so for me, it was very different, but it was wonderful to be able to bring a character to life that's antithetical to my own personal views and my own personal opinions, but to make that character kind of funny and humanize them in sort of an effort to say, look, underneath it all, we're all just messy human beings. And some of us were taught in certain ways to believe certain things that are wrong. And some of us were taught other things that I believe are right. And so at the core of it, though, is human nature and human capacity to see that we are connected through our emotions mm -hmm. and that we are connected through things like our grief and all of these different things that sort of make us human beings. Now, the legacy of the Me Too movement is mm -hmm. something I've discussed on this show with past guests like Anthony Rapp and Rebecca Corey, and I've talked about it in plenty of other places as well. But uh, like Rebecca and Anthony, you were one of the first prominent figures to publicly share your Me Too story. And I'm curious how you feel about the state of Me Too today? Well, it was an interesting time. I think we've all been through a very complicated several years, not only mm -hmm. with Me Too and, mm -hmm. you know, the creation of Time's Up, of which I was one of the founders. and mm -hmm. uh, But I think also with the 2016 election, which I still think a lot of people are, you know, when we talk about PTSD, I think there has been a, a string of it that has come since 2015, all the way up through the pandemic. And I think the election of Donald Trump in 2016, but even more so the defeat of Hillary Clinton, which is, I think it really transformed most women I know, even women who didn't like her, who didn't vote for her, but felt like if that woman can't make it, we are all Mm -hmm. And that sort of sent this, this ripple effect, this message through all of our central nervous systems, through all of our psyches. And I would say even through our ancestral psyches, like way back in hundreds of years ago to, to the feelings of what women are just not allowed to achieve when we talk about power. And so obviously that was like 
in my mind, a huge catalyst for what happened. You know, in the years before the Me Too movement had happened, and then also several months before the Harvey Weinstein article came out, I had written a piece in the New York Times mm-hmm. that was called um, I'm Done With Not Being Believed, which was essentially about this perception of women in any position of power, whether you are vying for the presidency of the United States or whether you just want to raise, you want equal pay, you want someone to stop touching your leg at work, you want someone to trust you and believe that your opinion matters and it has perspective in the work that you do, whatever that imbalance of power may be. I bring all this up to say that I think we were sort of under a collective zeitgeist in 2017 everyone was sort of ready in that moment to speak out. And people were ready to say, we're truly done. We're done with this mechanism and the way this has been going. We're also done for asking for permission. That's over. We're not doing that. Now, I think currently we've gone back to asking for permission again. As of right now, it sort of feels quiet. And I think maybe that that's a good place for it to be because we have had a lot of change in the industry. But as always, I don't think we've had enough. And there should be more. There will be more. Absolutely. I agree. And it's interesting to think back when you're talking about that time period, because I had a TV show, One Mississippi, that we were writing before Harvey Weinstein, and we were getting so much pushback and notes from the network, and they were just like doubting certain aspects of of uh, what we were writing about and everybody was bringing in their personal stories. And we were just like, we felt so united in that writer's room. This is real. And this is goes on. This goes on from childhood through the workplace and families and everywhere. And it was so interesting because the show aired. And then a few months later, Harvey Weinstein was called out yeah. and taken down. And uh, people are still finding that show. And they're like, did you know something that other people... And we were like, no, we were See? just... See, that's what I mean. That's what I'm saying is when you talk about yeah. the zeitgeist, it's really an interesting time because it just all teed up perfectly. Take you were there in that meeting that we had, mm-hmm. one of the first ones. Yeah. And so I remember you and many other women in our industry, emailing, all of us sort of emailing and coming together. There was one specific meeting that then became multiple meetings and meetings and meetings. And that is sort of how Time's Up was formed, but mm-hmm. also from Tarana Burke's Me Too movement, which she founded, you know, decades ago. Yeah. It sort of became this secondary fire that was burning underneath that conversation. But I just remember reaching out to you and I remember reaching out to other women who were like, I'm there. What are we doing? Let's yeah. do something. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It felt like a time of like certain people messed with the wrong people and it all came to a head. Yeah. Now, Amber, do people come to you for advice? They do. Okay. They do come to me for advice. I am someone who gets asked advice a lot. Well, this is perfect because I mean, my audience, they need guidance. Are you ready to help some people out? I'm ready. I don't know if I'll be, you know, I can oh. no guarantees. Oh, please. I can try. guarantee. I can guarantee. <laughs> oh, okay. Stop. Go on. Go on. You played <laughs> a teenager who talks directly with God in Joan of Arcadia. And I'm hoping that'll come in handy for this first listener question. Perry in Atlanta writes, Dear Tig, an interesting guest. I'm going to just dive right in. 
When I pray, I hear God's voice in my head as your voice, Tig, board size included. How do you feel about this? Is it healthy? Wrong? Do I need help? Yeah, I kind of want to know how you feel about that, Tig. (laughs) First and foremost. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking, are you literally thinking Tig's voice or are you thinking, Perry, a Tig-like voice that sounds bored? My wife calls me Eeyore when I talk. She's like, okay, Eeyore. And I'm not (laughs) bored. I just, I'm like, would I be bored as God? These are big questions. I'd have to say no if we're looking at God as a non-denominational mm-hmm. entity that is all-powerful and can do whatever he, she, they wants. Mm-hmm. But I feel like he'd be definitely a very funny God that would tell very good jokes. <laughs> well, thank you. If there is a God, I feel like I am an extension of God, and I don't feel bored So I'm going to say I, as well as this God, whether it's all around or just in your head, Perry, is not bored. I would just take that vibe as like a comforting, reassuring, just take a deep breath is what this voice and this God and this vibe is trying to um, impart on you, I guess, is what I'm thinking. I have a a bit of a confession, speaking of God. Oh, okay. I think I'm kind of in the same boat as Perry without even realizing it, but I cannot look at a baby without hearing your voice as well. Me? Yeah, that has been a thing for me for years. And I think what it's tied to is like, like that you are the voice of the baby and it makes me laugh. I think I've even made that joke to David, uh, my husband, (laughs) numerous times. (laughs) That I'm the voice of the baby? Yeah, when they're looking, when they just look at you. And I know that it's tied to that joke, which has pulled me out of more depressions than anything, Mm. which is the joke about the baby showering and turning around and looking at you is one of the great (laughs) jokes of all time. And I think that's where it comes from. But I do, I will say, I'm like, what would that baby say in Tig's voice. And I only (laughs) just remembered this because of his question. (laughs) That is so funny. Look at that, Perry. (laughs) That is the God pulling us all together in this moment. That's right. Working in mysterious ways. Very mysterious. I mean, that's one of the most mysterious ways I've ever seen this God work. And I hope I didn't sound bored answering your question, Perry. Amber, we're going to return with more questions right after this short break. So do not go anywhere. I'm ready. Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Way basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Way with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise 
people like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Rowland, and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday, and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. You can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Sephora, and Zappos. And even stack deals on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, it's Janae Desmond-Harris, a.k.a. Dear Prudence, and I want you to tell me about all your problems. Each week on Slate's Dear Prudence podcast, I'm here to tackle your questions about relationships, sex, work, family, and beyond, all with the help of an expert guest. We'll help you navigate it all. Whether you're a teen dealing with parents, an adult looking to spice up your sex life, or you just need some validation that you're not losing it, we're here to listen and to offer some guidance. Need help? Just ask Prudy. New episodes every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. We are back. Amber, as I mentioned at the top, you edited the new anthology, Listening in the Dark, Women Reclaiming the Power of Intuition. This next question touches on that theme. Dina writes, Tig, I just listened to your episode with Karen Kilgariff, who co-hosts the podcast, My Favorite Murder. She said that women should listen to their intuition more to avoid horrible things happening. For example being murdered. But isn't that what some 911 calling Karens say they are doing to earn their poor reputations? They are nervous. They feel they are listening to their intuition to get help. How can we stay safe, be smart, and navigate the world safely without bias, including racism? I have a lot of thoughts about this. Okay, great. Let's hear it. First of all, I'm thinking of And it's an excellent question. And it is at the heart of several of the essays in Listening in the Dark. One Mm. of them in particular is called Practicing the Quiet that our friend Amy Poehler wrote, Mm -hmm. which sort of takes place and starts with this story about when she was younger about being followed home and attacked and how she didn't really react. She didn't really do anything and how that sort of informed who she became and this need to be the biggest funniest, loudest voice and persona in the room, but how that was sort of became a detriment for her, including an experience she talks about in the essay where she saw something happening between two unhoused people by the side of the road in LA and she wanted to get involved and she wasn't sure if she should. And so second guessing herself and saying like, am I being that white lady? Mm -hmm. Am I doing the thing that is wrong? Mm -hmm. So she sort of explores that in the essay a little bit. And, you know, Another thing I'll say about this is that intuition 
is a muscle. Just like we work out to get strong, right? To have good bone density, to do stuff like that. Intuition, contrary to what some people might believe, is not just a thing you tap into and have immediately. And you're like, look at that. I Mm. feel my gut. I know what my gut is telling me. I'm good to go. It is Mm -hmm. something you have to work at understanding and work at creating a path to to having a relationship with in your own self. And part of that work from the research that I did for this book is untangling this horrific knot of understanding what the difference is in women between intuitive intelligence and anxiety. And we have been taught to lean on anxiety as a preferred option of mm-hmm. what to do with those feelings. So when you have Karens calling the cops out of a place of racism in a situation like that, that is actually not necessarily coming from a place of intuition. That is probably mm-hmm. somebody who is deeply untethered mm-hmm. to their own intuitive voice, to what their mm-hmm. gut is really telling them, which is actually probably not that ask yourself difficult questions that might be hard to hear the answer about. For instance, am I racist? Now there's going to be an immediate sensation, which is part of our flight or fight mechanism that is going to demand that we are not, and is going to make a thousand excuses and want to run away from this very quickly because it is deeply uncomfortable. And there's no way I could because, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a black friend, Mm -hmm. whatever the excuses. But if we sit with the discomfort for a moment, And we try to figure out what is the connection between what our body is trying to tell us and what our rational thought and our rational intelligence is also trying to tell us. And intuition is sort of the connection between both of those things. Mm -hmm. But so often we are ignoring the physical self and what that can be telling us. And so when we're ignoring that, what comes into play, what takes over for us is our anxiety, is the fear. And intuition is not about fear. There should be other elements of this decision-making experience that are filled with enlightenment and joy and like a deep sense of fire and curiosity. Intuition is like a, you know, all cylinders firing at once Mm -hmm. and you're getting a sense of something that feels bigger than you. Shout out to Perry, could be God. (laughs) And so, so to my mind, this long answer is to just say, don't take it for granted, your intuitive intelligence go at it slowly. It's a muscle to be nurtured and to be aware of and to think of as something that is very important in your life. But it's not something to think that that's just immediately a place in which we react and behave from because it isn't. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Just even the term of listening to your gut, I keep bringing up my wife, but she, I always say it's such a part of me of my gut and listening to my gut. And and she said recently that she hasn't really heard of it in those terms. And I talk about it always of like, oh, I could just in my gut or I just, I have to listen to my gut. And that term is so tied to when I was a kid and I was always getting in trouble and I was sitting in the principal's office and I became very close to my principal, my vice principal the disciplinarian. And instead of disciplining me, she would always talk to me Mm. and try and walk me through these decisions I was making. And the main thing she would talk about is listening to my gut. Listen to your gut. That 
is the answer. It's right there. Listen to your gut. And I would always, I truly felt like a kid in a movie being like, listen to my gut. What does that mean? Like I, I couldn't even grasp the concept. And now it is one million percent what has driven me to do my TV show One Mississippi that made me say that I had cancer on stage, that made me take my shirt off on stage. Every risk and leap that I have made has been based solely on listening to my gut. And that is to just back up the idea of it's a muscle. And I feel like it is very strong for me now. It can be for anybody. It's a listening process. That is your principle, your person setting you up to say like, here, let me see your arm. This right here, that's where the muscle is. Mm -hmm. She pointed it out for you and said, Mm -hmm. by even telling you that and allowing you to go, listen to my gut. Hmm, What does that mean? That's a beginning process. We can't take that stuff for granted. That really, really matters. And that set you up towards a path to investigate it Mm -hmm. and find out what that means for you. It's fascinating and very important. Dina, thanks for the question. I hope that helps. Amber, this next one comes from a listener in Pennsylvania. Christy writes, My amazing daughter is 17 years old and has a diverse circle of friends. One of those friends identifies as a lesbian, and her parents don't support her for religious reasons. Let's call her Rory. (laughs) I love that she chose the name Rory. I love the name Rory. The problem is junior prom is coming up and Rory's parents won't let her go unless she wears a dress. She is uncomfortable in dresses. She was planning to stay home and miss prom, but my daughter and friends bought her a super cool pants outfit to wear. They asked if Rory could come to our house to get dressed for prom. My initial reaction is yes. However, I don't want to lie, quote unquote, to her parents. Any advice? When I was little, my mother definitely did the typical thing of, um, you know, it's this occasion, you have to wear a dress or, oh, here are these shoes. And there was a lot of pushback. And my mother, who was also a very free-spirited, artistic, wild person, kind of came to her senses and was kind of like, what am I doing? I'm the most rebellious person and I love you and I love you for who you are. And then my mother really started to embrace it and thought I looked so cool all the time, no matter what I was wearing or what my hair looked like. And it makes me sad to think that people aren't out there living and experiencing their lives in that way. I don't know if it's lying to her parents, but maybe she walks out the door in her dress or with her dress, and then she puts on her cool pants outfit at your house, and you're like the safe haven, the place where she can be herself. Because it does get tricky. Obviously, it You don't know all the ins and outs of what this child, Rory, might be dealing with in her home. What is your feeling, if you have any, about it, Amber? I don't really have much to add because that's probably what I would say. And I think our kids, especially right now, with the onslaught of everything from what's going on in the LGBTQ community, but to gun violence and everything else, need, as you said, some kind of safe havens that are adults who can help 
support kids. But I also agree with you that I don't know what Rory's home life is like. So yeah, it could be complicated, but I do love the idea of having someone in your corner who is also an adult, but who's like, I see you and I get you. And I know that this is who you are or who you want to be. Yeah. I wish Rory the absolute best. And I think it's wonderful that whatever happens on prom night, that there is somebody in Rory's corner. And we're in Rory's corner. Rory, we are in your corner. Big time. Yes. A million percent. Okay. Christy, best of luck to you and Rory. Amber, there's one last thing for you to do before we wrap up here. I call it name that thing. Name that thing. Okay. This is a segment where we help listeners come up with a good name for something of theirs. My guests and I have named many things, including vegan meatballs and a pickle tattoo. The only catch is whatever name we choose, the listener must use. Wow. This is very stressful, but I'm, yes, it makes sense. I'm in. Azalea K. writes, Dear Tig and future guest, I'm 13 and going to see my grandparents for the first time in two years. As a present, I'm making them a book of my writing, and I don't know what to call it. I'm including essays, speeches, poems, short stories, and a witch's spell. <gasps> I know. Extremely excited. Go on. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling that was going to be your reaction. It's going to be bound and I'm going to make a cover, but I'm stuck on the title. Can you help me name that thing? Thanks. <laughs> Are these her essays? This is her writing? Yeah, it's a book of my writing. Okay. She says. So she's making a hand-bound chapbook is what it's called. Yeah. I actually write about this in Substack too. Um, highly recommend reading the one on chapbooks and how to make them. Uh-huh. I am a deep, deep lover of chapbook making. Let's see here. 13 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Azalea K. This feels like a much bigger responsibility than like a pickle tattoo. It is, but we've named children, oh, that's you know. amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. If you're coming to me for this segment, you know you're in for it, you know? And I don't have an idea quite yet, but I'm thinking that we have talked about ourselves when we were poets in our early teen years. Was there anything we talked about that we can bring back? I'm just trying to do maybe some word and age association. I'm even thinking of the using some of the words from the one line of your poem. Mm, mm-hmm. Sometimes I think of you, but then again, I always do. I Can we just go back to that just for a second? I thought that was the greatest line in the world. I was, I truly sat there like, wow, this is, this is good. Or what about, do you have a line from something that you've written that you're like, oh, this never quite fit anywhere or a name? Well, I don't have a name, but the thing that I instantly thought of. Because Azalea Kay's got a thing. Uh, Azalea Kay's got a thing. And my daughter, who's six, mm -hmm. talks a lot about her witch's mark, <laughs> which is where she thinks from, which is on her forehead. And she can tell if I'm not telling her something. Oh. This is sort of my version of offering intuition. 
for a six-year-old. Yeah. And it is also the name of Eliza Clark, who created Why the Last Man, which is very much about women's intuition. It's the name of her production company. So I'm wondering if we just want to keep the tradition and it could have something to do with like a witch's something. Mm -hmm. Because she's got a spell in there. (laughs) This is so great. Azalea's. (laughs) The Mark of Azalea K. I love it. It's great. Do you? I do. Is it the mark or the marks? The marks. No, the mark, I think. The Mark of Azalea K. That also sounds like a young adult series novel that I would totally read. (laughs) It feels like a really good title. That's perfect. I was focusing on the word witch and thinking of like different orientations of that. I went around the other way. Yeah. And also like Mark and it hits hard on the K, which Mm -hmm. references Azalea K. I think that's it. I don't think we could do better. The Mark of Azalea K. We did it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Unless we should have her just name the book Michelle. Michelle. Oh. (laughs) No, we're not doing that to a 13 year old. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like this is the title of this book. It's so good. Yeah. Azalea K. Your book is now titled The Mark of Azalea K. Congratulations. Excellent. I cannot wait to read it. Yeah. Congratulations on becoming an author. Amber, thank you so much. This is truly such a pleasure to talk to you and to see your mug, even though it was only over Zoom. Is there anything that you'd like to mention before you go? No, this was a wonderful conversation and I loved seeing your face again. Nothing to direct people to. I mean, we mentioned your writing and your appearances on shows, but anything coming up? Oh, just follow your gut, everyone. You'll find me. Mm, Love it. AKA Google. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I hope to see you again soon. Yes. Thanks, Tig. Bye. Bye. And now that the show is over, go to don'tasktig.org slash live to sign up for our special virtual event with Mark Marin on April 24th at 6 p.m. Pacific time, 9 p.m. Eastern and 8 p.m. Central. For more information, head to donasktig.org slash live and donate $15 or more to attend. Again, Don't Ask Tig Live with Mark Marin is happening April 24th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. Head to donasktig.org slash live. Looking forward to seeing you all there. is hosted by me, Tig Notaro. It's produced by Thomas Willette and Shayna Deloria. Our executive producer and editor is Beth Perlman. Engineering and sound mixing by Alex Simpson. Digital production by James Napoli. Talent booking by Marianne Ways. Our theme music is 
Friend in Tig by Edie Burkell and Kyle Crusham. And Listen to Your Heart by Edie Burkell. Special thanks to Hunter Seidman. APM Studios executives in charge are Chandra Kavadi, Alex Schaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Concept developed by Tracy Mumford. Our executive consultant is Dean Capello and Gobsmack Studios. You can always ask for advice at don'tasktig.org. Just write in with your problem or send us a voice memo. Remember to follow us on social media at Don't Ask Tig. Don't Ask Tig is a production of American Public Media. And as always, thanks, Dana, and I'll tell Becky. I'm stand-up comedian and sex symbol Tig Notaro. And I'm actor and writer Cheryl Hines. Before Cheryl and I got into the big business of podcasting together, (laughs) we were just simply friends. And we're still friends. But now we talk about a different documentary every week on our podcast, Tig and Cheryl, True Story. So whether you love documentaries or just want to hear us slowly lose our minds, check out Tig and Cheryl, True Story, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, cool.